If you will, turn back in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 22. Numbers chapter 22. And I warn you that if you have an aversion to thinking, you might want to get up and leave right now. We are getting closer and closer if we are putting our feet in the shoes of ancient Israel to them obtaining the promise for which God had given them. And as I've stated before, when God is calling you somewhere, calling you to something, calling you to an assignment, there's always going to be somebody that doesn't like it. And so application has to come early in our conversation today, early enough to kind of build a bifocal attention, if we can, one on the historical text, as a lot of people really don't handle or understand the Old Testament well. The other is its application to us, because there's always an application. Remember what your Bible says. This is Romans 15, 4. Those things that were written aforetime were written for our learning. Not merely for us to go, oh, that happened to them. And then again, in 1 Corinthians 10, he lays these things out. These are examples, two boxes, patterns for you and I that we might not do the evil that they did. So whenever we read scripture, particularly the Old Testament, we want to understand it in its larger applicational lens in a present contemporary fashion, which is what we do, which is what I do with you and we're going to do today. Before our eyes, there are two people that we're going to be dealing with. I want you to keep their names in view because they're going to serve as a tandem, not only to discipline Israel, but to discipline us because truth is eternal by nature. That means wherever you derive truth, it doesn't matter where it's from, all truth comes from God. And as a consequence, it being truth, it never changes. Facts can change, events can change, ideas can change, opinions can change. Truth never changes. So once you appertain the truth, it has permanent application across all of time because God himself is the essence of truth. And so that's what we want to look for in our text. The title of our study today, our overarching theme is Arise, Move, and Go. For those of you who don't know that, I repeat it because you and I, if you're true believers, when God called you by his grace, he called you to arise, arise up out of darkness and to follow him who is the light of the world. Arise up out of spiritual death and live in relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Arise out of lethargy and idleness of life and actually be missional as a child of the living God in the world. God always has assignments for us. Arise, move, and go. That means every day you and I get up, we are to mimic the sun metaphorically, which sets in the east, uh, sets in the east and rises in the west, right? Did I get that backwards? Rises in the east and sets in the west. Me and my wife were in Santa Barbara the other day, and we were talking about how the uh, geographical landscape is such where you're looking for the sun to set in one area, and it sets somewhere else, and so you get messed up in your head. It's all a metaphor, as you already know, the sun never moves. So this here is about perception, is it not? The idea of the sun rising for us is that every day God gives us a new day. That means you and I to rise up in newness of life and be about our father's business, no matter how small the nuanced task for the day may be. You and I may be operating out of a set of normative principles where life is kind of mundane 
And you ought to thank God for that, too. I love mundanity. I love predictability because, see, I'm a habitual creature. I get up in the morning. I'm going straight to my coffee and I'm sitting down at my desk and I'm engaging in worship with the true and the living God, waiting for him to tell me what I need to do. Now, when that pattern gets broken, I'm a little bit discombobulated, aren't you? So so normalcy and predictable patterns are good for us. They are necessary cycles by which you and I can take a stability of purpose and then begin to confidently walk in the things of God. Every now and then your life gets disrupted. It gets disrupted by trials and challenges for which, as we learned last week, and we're going to pick up those trials when you don't properly interpret them will become what? Temptations. And the difference between a trial and a temptation is a trial will drive you to God. And a temptation will drive you away from God. And a lot of times you and I are driven away from God when we lose our equilibrium and forget where the sun rises and sets. Y'all keeping up with me, right? And so here it is in our account, we're dealing with two men I want to talk about, and they carry a prophetic application all the way to the end time. In fact, where we are, one, his name is Balak. You will hear people say Balak. That is an English distortion of the Hebrew construct, okay? It's Balak. I've told you both in the Hebrew and the Greek, most of your vowel points are always what are called short vowels, not long vowels. So it's not generally A, it's A or A. So Balak. And the same is with Balaam. We call him Balaam. Hebrews don't call him Balaam. They call him Balaam. So Balak and Balaam are the two, okay? that we are dealing with. Now, these two characters become a, a type and pattern for us. Balak is a king. He is a political entity. Balaam is a prophet. He is a religious entity. We are dealing with two beasts here of Revelation chapter 12 and 13. Beast one, politics. Beast two, religion. The combined two systems are always trying to take out the people of God. That is your prophetic application. We'll see that in a moment as the book of Revelation demands that we go to it because none other than the Lord Jesus Christ will be talking about Balaam or as you know him, Balaam in the book of Revelation. Let me make some application. We have a king from Moab and Moab is right up against Jordan as you heard in verse one. His name is Balak who sees Israel in a much better light than they see themselves. Someone outside of you over against you may actually see you better than you see yourselves. And with that kind of perspective on you, they might actually be agitated by what they know about you that you may not be aware of. Let me make this application early. I don't want you to get super happy about it because it sounds like it's about you. It's really not. And it is. Often your enemies will assault you or attack you or oppose you because they are afraid of you. Often your enemies will oppose you, attack you, seek to hinder you, distract you, challenge you, make life hard for you because they fear you. That's what our text says. I'm not I'm not being super ingenious here. That's what it says. He was afraid of them. 
Okay, that's what the text tells us. Verse three, and Moab was sore afraid of the people. That's interesting, is it not? A lot of times you're dealing with adversaries and in uh, situations that seem to oppose you. And you would think that what that is, is their own sort of pride and confidence and diminishing of you because they don't view you as significant. You might think that your enemies are coming after you because they view you less than you really are. But a lot of times adversaries, enemies, opposition are actually projecting on you their fears about you. You need to hurry up and catch that. And what that means is uh, the child of God has to actually understand who they are and the authority that they walk in in order to know actually what's going on here in this struggle, what's going on here in this conflict, so as not to take it personal. What if I am who I am by the grace of God? What if I am who I am in my gifting, my calling, my service, because God has equipped me? What if God is using me above and beyond my natural capacities? What if people are influenced by who I am and what I do simply because I'm walking in fellowship with my God? I am not conscious of any of that. I'm only aware that I'm doing what I'm called to do. In my own eyes, I'm nothing. But in God's eyes, I am his representative. Now, what that may do to other people, I'm not necessarily busy about that until it takes on a direct hit. Then I got to remember, like Jesus says, if they do that to you, it's really that they're doing it to me. Now, it's important to know that because, again, you and I are so toxically trapped by the narcissism of our own importance. A lot of times God gives you an enemy so you can realize you ain't all that. And so Balak has seen some things about Israel that would disturb him. Namely, if we were to go back to chapter 21 and work our way into chapter 22, we would realize that Balak was on the top of the hill at Moab with his big binoculars watching Israel systematically take out king after king after king. From the king of Canaan to the king of Bashan to the king of Sion and many others as they are making their way to the edge of the border. In other words, Balak or Balak sees them coming directly towards him. Y'all keeping up with me? And so he is under threat of this people of whom he has described. And I want you to get it just in case you missed it. Now, God told Israel, you are few among the people. You are a minority group. I didn't choose you because you were the greatest, largest, biggest, or the best. And neither did God choose you because you are the greatest, largest, bigger, or the best. He chose you because he loved you and he loved you in Christ when you were factually the least and the worst and the scoundrel of the world. God does not choose the mighty or the strong, but the weak and the base and the things that are of not in order to confound the things that are. So when you're happy about him electing you in love, please understand this. He chose you because you couldn't do a thing without him. Okay, in yourself, as is with me, there is no good thing. That paradoxical truth needs to be understood because you see, anytime we get out of line and think it's about us, God will take his hand off of us us, as we are going to assert here 
in a little bit. Now, largely, I'm giving you two characters I want to talk about. But really, our subject today is going to be around the sovereignty of God. Two characters, the sovereignty of God. Two men who would love to see the annihilation of a people group who are minding their own business, trying to do the will of God. And God's going to show up and teach you and me something about how he controls and how he allows and how he hinders and how he forbids and how he controls the heart of every man so that God's people will understand that God is in control even of the evil that comes into their life. So what we're looking at is a king that absolutely fears the people of God. Notice what he says over in verse four. It says, and Moab said unto the elders of Midian, now shall this company lick up all that are round about us, using the metaphor of an ox. As the ox lick, lips, licks up the grass of the field, and Balak, or Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of Moab at that time. And notice what verse 5 says. He sent messengers, therefore, unto Balaam, the son of Beor, Pithor, of Pithor, which is by the river of the land of the children of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, there is a people come out of Egypt. So he had to report, didn't he? That was 40 years ago. We're at the end of our journey, are we not? So he heard about them coming out of Egypt 40 years ago, and he's wondering, what are they up to, these nomads wandering the desert? Now listen to the next expression, how he hallmarks them. Notice what it says. He says, which is, uh, which is by the river, he says, and there is a people come out of Egypt. Behold, they cover the face of the earth. Do you see it? This is what I'm getting at. No, this here, is ag- this here is exaggerated speech, but it's not something that is not uncommon in the Bible. This here is formulaic language that's prophetic in nature. God made it very clear that the whole earth would be full of his glory. That's the nature of the present reason why our world exists, for his glory to show up everywhere on the planet. But how is his glory going to show up if his people who bear his glory are not there? So Jesus said, go ye into all the what? World and preach the gospel to every nation so that the glory of God would reside all over the world. Here now, Israel is viewed in Balak's eyes as covering the earth. That means in his mind, he's seen millions of the children of Israel, is he not? This is going to affirm for you, as I have stated to you from the beginning, because of my knowledge of the word of God, that we are dealing with at least 1.5 million people. Now, that's not a lot today in our culture of billions of people, but back then that was a lot. And so in a certain kind of context, from a certain perspective, when Balak sees these billions of people, and we know they are because the numbers tell us when they enter into the promised land, over 600,000 fighting men, which as I share it with you, you magnify that by three or four because of a wife and children, you're dealing with 1.5, 1.6, even up to 2 million people. Are you guys keeping up with me? I'm helping you understand your Bible is accurate when you're careful with it. In a certain context, two million people is impressive, are they not? Yes, indeed. So this king is operating out of what? Fear. And he does something because of it that I want you to be instructed in. Because this is what happens with kingdoms and powers and authorities and rulers. When rulers are fearing a threat of their territory, 
or they are fearing a loss of their commodities or they are under concern as to whether or not they will be put at a disadvantage. They will go to no unending effort to try to stop you if they don't have the confidence that they can beat you at the collateral damage of physical war, they'll do exactly what the present king we're dealing with will do. Enter into a deeper assault of your soul and mind, both at the spiritual and the demonic level. All kingdoms, when they are desperate to be maniacal powers on the earth, seek wizards, seek mediums, seek witchcraft, seek demonic authority to help them overcome their enemies. I'm going to say it one more time because of the incredulity in our group, because you and I are ignorant of what's really going on in our world. There is no kingdom on this earth, no nation on this earth where their rulers are not so given to the avarice of power that they won't call on the devil to help them acquire the energy necessary to do what they do. You must know this is true. You must know that this is true. You must not be as ignorant as many shallow-minded Christians are who live in the physical and empirical dimension thinking that's all that's going on is we, what we get on CNN News and Fox News. There's way more going on than what meets the eye. In fact, I've told you long ago, see now you can tell I'm not even at my first point, so we're going to be here for a minute. I've told you long ago that you don't get anywhere in this world in terms of matriculating up into a position of high influence that the devil doesn't put you there. I told you that. Our master taught us that. Here he is, is about to enter into his ministry and the devil comes to him and says, if you want the kingdoms of this world, you got to bow down and worship me. So when you and I meet power uh, authorities and, and kingdoms that are ruling in a magnificent way, most of the time they are under demonic influence because your Bible tells you we are not wrestling. We are not toiling. We are not struggling with. We are not in a conflict with flesh and blood. See, Christians totally forget this. We're, we're not simply engaging in ethnic diversity and ethnic differences, which is another distraction. This is not about flesh and blood. This is about principalities and powers and dominions in high places operating behind the scene in synods and in councils and in bodies of authority to actually navigate the world in order for the enemy to have control over mankind. That's where you are. That's where I am. That's why our text is relevant today. A king and a prophet are collaborating together to stop the advancement of the cause of God. Did that make some sense? This is important for you to get. So there are going to be some times, and only you babies will never know it, there are going to be times when you're going through hell. Euphemistically speaking, I know a lot of my Christian brothers, pastors don't use the word hell. Just stop all that, pastor. Those words are just too harsh. Don't use the word hell. But sometimes we go through hell. And then we'll forget that it's really literally hell. You'll forget that you're dealing with principalities and powers. 
And it depends totally on where you are in the will of God in your life. And what if that's true? What if what you're dealing with is a stratagem that is a collaboration of peoples or an institution or a group simply because you are a light bearer of the grace of God? What if that's so? Your job is to immediately resort to the true and the living God as a shelter and a hiding place so that you can put on the full armor of God in order to wage war where you are at. It's not your job to fight and argue and open your mouth and get in trouble because God will pull out his belt on you in the midst of your enemies and teach you some things about being stupid when it comes to spiritual warfare. Y'all keeping up with me? The thing I want you to get today, if you're ready to get up and leave, you won't hear one word from Israel over the next three chapters. You're not going to hear from the people. Chapter 22 to 24 is devoted to this king and this prophet trying to destroy the people of God. And God wants you to understand that above the king and above the prophet is the king of kings and lord of lords. That's going to control both of them so that you and I understand all things working together for good to them that love God. All things are going to work after the counsel of his own will. They may mean it for evil, but God will mean it for good. So long as we are walking in lockstep with the will of God. Am I making some sense? I hope you get it. Let me calm down so y'all don't get scared. Balak took it to another level. He didn't calculate, like Jesus said in the parables, when a man goes to war, he calculates the cost. He didn't think about how many men he was going to need, how many men he would have to raise up. He took this to a whole nother level. He said, we're going to demons. We're going to wizards. We're going to enchantment and seances. We're going to the dark powers. Y'all saw it in 300 Y'all saw it in a lot of the ancient movies. I'm telling you, those are real factors that go on today. Kings and rulers seek wizards and priests and dark powers and witches in order to get from the underworld the help they need to try to subdue their foe, which is all in evidence that most of our leaders do not know the true and the living God. It's important for you to know that. Some trust in horses. And others trust in chariots. And then yet still others trust in witches and in demons and in Ouija boards and in prognostications and in prophecies and in the Kabbalah and in all of the new age philosophical dark underbelly teachings that come from hell. And God had told Israel, don't you ever do it. As he's walking them up to the edge of a people group, he told them in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 10 and 11, you better not seek them. You better not incline your your pathways to be curious about these wizards and enchantments. You better not find yourself reading the newspaper to try to get your lucky charm. There shall not be found among you one that makes his son or his daughter to pass through the fire. That's abortion today. That uses divinations, I'll talk about that, or observers of time, that is your Ouija board, that is your tarot cards, that is your zodiac systems, and observers of times, and enchanters or witches. 
which is growing astronomically around the world as we speak. You shall not seek these things to find out where the true power is. And Christians are all awash in that stuff, thinking that they can serve God and actually tap into that dark new age gospel, too. A lot of it is in your church, even in your religious leaders. I'm just telling you the truth. Or a charmer or a consulter with familiar spirits or a wizard or a necromancer. That is one calling the dead. Stay with me. Whenever God gave Israel the warning not to do it in the Old Testament, they always ended up doing it. What you have before you in Balak and Balaam is actually a prophecy of the behavior pattern of Israel by the time God has to destroy them in 622 B.C. and 587 B.C. They're going to go into the promised land and they're going to look at all of these people engaging in all of these false religions and they're going to engage in the syncretism of sinking into those very same things. Are you hearing me? They are going to actually do contrary to what Torah tells them to do. They're going to engage in it. This is how you collapse. This is how you apostatize. This is how you depart from God. And, and one might ask the question, if you're listening to me, why would they continually depart from the true and the living God, engage in that stuff? I'll tell you why. Are you ready? Because it's much more attractive than propositional true. It's much more alluring in the flesh. Their mediums are often beautiful, gorgeous, almost naked women and freaks of all kind across the spectrum of male and female phenotype or expression. They always come off to you with smiling faces, showing no traces, but full of demonic lies. They almost always do. It's attractive to you. Are y'all hearing me? It's way more attractive than the boring propositional truth of the Bible. It's way more alluring. If you're not grounded in a love for truth, where you walk in objectivity, you are going to slither your way on into those pathways and labyrinths, which are ubiquitous online right now as we speak. And this is how Christians get trapped and become nullified and lose their identity and are never able to come up out of these systems. This is where we are Today, behind the costumes and charades of your carnival celebrations, vanity fairs, what John Bunyan called them, they are engaging in what you might know as false happiness, false joy. It's not real. False joys. They're really engaging in bondage, slavery, oppression. Spiritual wickedness are controlling these people who put on the carnival act for you. While outwardly they put on the clown face, behind the scenes they are depressed and almost suicidal. And they want you to be that way too. And people who are given to lengthy, uh, what I would call indiscreet practices of pleasure are susceptible to these same outcomes. If you think you were born and raised for pleasure, you're wrong. You're born and raised for a purpose that might grant pleasure, but it has to be a pleasure that's according to God's word because all pleasure is not good for you. Do y'all hear what I'm saying? One has to be resolved to know that the ultimate pleasure that we are to immerse ourselves in does not happen on this side of glory. 
The pleasure that God's people are called to cannot be the vanities of this world that fall way short of their promise. You know how they promise you just all absolute joy and fullness. No, the blessings of the wicked always come with a curse. Ask anybody that has made it to high places who now have fallen because they have betrayed the system. They know that they were controlled by dark powers that caused them to suffer because they lost their identity. This is exactly what's going on in our account. Let me, let me begin to make my way through because I only got a little bit of time, which I'm going to see if I can at least get through point one and just bridge on point two. I want to talk to you more so now about not just Balak, the fearful king, but I want to talk to you about Balaam, or Balaam, the foolish prophet. And the first point I want to develop, because you and I have to now walk through a complexity of Bible verses that trick most Christians because they just don't think well, is the baffling nature of this prophet. That's our first point, the baffling nature of the prophet and Balaam or Balaam, a baffling prophet. Pastor, what is baffling? Something that confounds. Something that that. That, that causes you to have a difficult time reasoning through. Something that confuses you. Something that actually makes it hard for you to take it apart and put it back together. When it's baffling, it's too sophisticated for you. Are you hearing me? Balaam has been like that for many people in the church and many scholars have struggled with, is Balaam a child of God? I would go, no, and I would use the word H-E-L in front of no to let you know that Balaam is not a child of God. But when you read the language in the context, you're going to struggle with why does he seem to be so in tune with God? Y'all keeping up with me? And that's because he is a professional hypocrite. Now, I know y'all don't know anybody like that. I know you don't know professional hypocrites, but I'm going to help you now discern the text so that you can see that God wasn't fooled. And see, the thing about professional hypocrites, they are so good, they actually fool themselves. You're going to be better at it when you actually deceive yourself into thinking you're a child of God when you're really not. Am I making some sense? Right. So let me walk through this under point number one, the baffling confounding, confusing. I I would like to say paradoxical, but it's not a paradox. It's a contradiction. Balaam contradicts himself all through the text. And you have to know the difference between a paradox and a contradiction. Okay, you are a paradox, as am I. If you actually understand that you are between grace and glory, you're full of paradoxes. Just let folks know you're simultaneously righteous and simple at the same time. That's why they get confused over you. Did that come home? I am both righteous and sinful. So sometimes my sinfulness rises up and I got to be honest about it. But on other days, I'm walking in the center of God's grace and I am who I am in Christ. And the righteousness of God in Christ shows up and I got to give him the glory for it. But there may be times when my pendulum is swinging kind of rough. The winds are blowing and my pendulum is swinging. And I'm just letting you know it might settle down. It might not. Put your construction hat on because I'm a work in progress. Does that make some sense? I am not a contradiction. I'm a paradox because God told me I'm not perfect in myself. I'm only perfect in Christ. 
That does not give me an excuse. This is why my daddy, even though I swing, still uses his belt on me. Because he wants me to narrow down that swing. That gets folks dizzy. They shouldn't get dizzy on you. Woo! This, every time I turn, they, they're over here and over there. Woo! At the nightclub on Friday and then at prayer on Sunday, Saturday and then Sunday evening back at the club. All right, that's too much swinging. That's way too much swinging. The baffling prophet. Let me see if we can drill down now that I have your attention. I want to try to be succinct about this, but I want you to get it. Balaam was stated to be a prophet that came from Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia is that portion of the world that is right near, really, the crescent where our brother Abraham was from, okay? Abraham was from Mesopotamia. If we had a map, you would know that it's the border of the Euphrates River going over into the area of Babylon, Syria, that whole region over there. That means they're way up in what we would call the, um, the northeast. And so Balaam is coming down from the northeast the same way that Abraham came down into Palestine when God gave him the land. But his children had to grow up over in Egypt across the Jordan. Now we are uh, southwest. Are you guys keeping up with me in that visual? Right. Balaam comes from a long way. And he's coming now and being used by God to challenge Israel over crossing over into the border. I'll have more to say about him next week, okay? Because we got to deal with him at least twice. And so this is what the text will tell us. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 4. I just want to pull it up so you guys can get it, okay? Listen to what Moses said about Balaam or Balaam. Because they met you not with bread and with water. He's talking about the Moabites. They met you not with bread and water in the way when you came forth out of Egypt. And because they what? Hired, hired against you, Balaam, the son of Beor, of Pithor, of what? Mesopotamia to curse you. This man came a long way to be a medium for cursing and blessings. Now, we're going to get deeper into this because the conundrum that Balaam brings to you and me is under points two, uh, points A, B, and C is that Balaam spoke to the true and the living God. That's so profound, isn't it? Look at what it says here over in verse 8 after the elders had come to him. He says over in verse 8, he said unto them, Lodge here this night, and I'll bring you word again as the Lord shall speak unto me. And the princes of Moab abode with Balaam. Now, Balaam was pretty confident that he could get God's attention. Now, what's about to take place between him telling the Moabites that he's going to talk to God and God talking to him is what we call an ellipsis. An ellipsis is a silent space that does not tell you how Balaam is going to get into contact with God. The text doesn't say he prays. It doesn't say he does rain dances in circles. It doesn't tell you what the mechanism is by which he talks to God because God doesn't want you to get trapped in his mechanisms because he knows Christians are stupid enough to miss the fact that Balaam is a higher demonic servant under the control of God and Christians will want the methodology. They'll want the protocol because really Christians are often tripped up by power than they are principle as well. Am I making some sense? If I can watch how Balaam gets a hold of God, man, I can package this thing and sell it to the church because Balaam represents all of your false prophets who labor for money. He's a hireling. 
Y'all keeping up with me? And you wonder why hirelings prosper? There's a whole host of demons behind them. That's how that works. So we see that Balaam spoke to the true and the living God. And look over at verse 10, by verse 8, verse 9. Uh, and Balaam said unto God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, had sent unto me, saying. So they're having a conversation, aren't they? Balaam has called on God and God has responded. That's subpoint B. God spoke to Balaam. Look at it over in verse, uh, verse 9. And God came unto Balaam and said, what men are these with thee? Do you see that? This is what we call narrative construction for those of you who are too wooden in your capacity to understand narrative language. God is being anthropomorphical. What is anthropomorphical? He's accommodating our limitations, so he speaks to us as if he does not know what's going on. Did y'all get that? Raise your hand if you got that. I just want to make sure. So when you read your Bible and Jesus goes, who touched me? He knew who touched him. There was a reason for which he is now making that audible expression so he can teach a lesson. All right. God knows everything. Right. And so God is engaging and accommodating as a narrative construct how he would with you and me. If we have a relationship with God, we can talk to God and we can only talk to him the way we know how to talk as humans. Do you understand that? You don't know the language of of omniscience, do you? If you do, let me know. How is the construct in that? Are there any kind of, uh, you know, uh, Socratic questions that you raise by which you, you know, you get the insight from God? No, you talk to God normally. And then God responds in his subtle ways to you, both in his word and in providence. You know that, right? But he's lisping, he's accommodating our weaknesses and limitations. Thank God for that. Okay, it's important for you to know. So he's engaging Balaam because God is intervening. He's intervening. You guys, you understand now the plot is let's destroy these people. God says that won't happen. And so he intervenes to engage with Balaam. Keeping up with me? Right. It's important for you to know. So it's really bizarre that Balaam could speak to the true and the living God. He does. And he, he, he repeats exactly what Balak says. Verse 11, behold, there is a people come out of Egypt, which covers the face of the earth. There it is. There it is again. Come now, curse me them. Peradventure, I shall be able to overcome them and drive them out. So uh, Balaam is actually explaining to God what the assignment is given to him from the pagan king. There's some integrity there, which is also a conundrum. Because Christians, when they're not right, will lie to God if they even dare to pray to God. When you're not being honest about what you really are up to. Am I making some sense? Balaam is talking to, Balaam is talking to God in the earnestness of the proposition that's come to him. Now, there are deeper things going on and we're getting ready to understand that. But what he is doing at face value is simply repeating what the king said. Y'all got that? He's simply repeating what the king said, because what the king said is really an opportunity for Balaam. And he wants to see if he can have permission to get paid. Hood folk know what I'm talking about with that. All right. And so we read over uh, in our outline, uh, Balaam spoke to the true and the living God. God spoke back to him. Look at what it says over in verse 12. And God said unto Balaam, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse them. For they are what? I'm going to talk about that in a minute. So this was God's response to the conversation with Balaam. Balaam said, hey, a bunch of people came here. They don't like your children. Uh, What you want me to do? And God says, don't go. 
because you will not curse my people because my people are blessed. Fairly straightforward. Would you agree? Is that fairly straightforward? All right, so it's time for you and I to learn something about Balaam. Balaam wasn't really seeking God. He was seeking wealth. Subpoint C, look at it. Balaam sought what? Balaam sought what? He wanted to get paid. Like, listen to me. If he didn't want to get paid, the conversation would have ended right there. We wouldn't even have two more chapters. God said, don't go, don't curse. My people are blessed. End of chapter, Balaam goes off the scene. We get a whole different event. Balaam says, no, let's keep talking. Sounds like a salesman to me. Y'all keeping up with me now? So I'm splitting the screen to show you how you got to be careful when Christians talk like they really mean business with God. Behind closed doors, however, there's another intent going on. Are you hearing me? We can frame language that's, you know, I prayed about it. I prayed about it. You know, I really was talking to God about it. I was finding Bible verses, too, to actually help me understand what I need to understand. And then I did my own thing, which is where we're going. Which is, please look at verse 12 very carefully. You see it? God said in the Balaam, what? You shall not go with them. See, if he doesn't go, he can't bless or curse. Do you see it? You shall not go with them. This is so funny. God just told him, don't go, right? Look at verse 13. And Balaam rose up in the morning and said unto the princes of Balak, get ye into your land for the Lord refuses to give me leave to go with you. Do you see that? This brother struggling. You know how he framed it? I want to go, man, but the Lord refuses me to go. I really do want to go, but the Lord said, you know, the Lord said I can't go. I, I, I want to go, but, I, but the Lord said. See what he's doing? This is, this, in politics, this is called equivocating. In politics, this is a triangulation. There are three parties in view. The party is God, the party is Balak, and the party is Balaam. Balaam really wants to go because, like I said, he wants to get what? get paid. And so he has to frame it like his problem is God said I can't. And so you know what he knows? The king is about to up the ante. This is business as usual. Look at what it says. And the princes of Moab rose up and they went to Balak and said unto said, Balaam refuses to come with us. And Balak sent yet again more princes and more honorable men than that. Y'all get on down. He sent them lieutenants. Now he's going to send them generals. Now notice what the text says in verse 19. And they came to Balaam and said unto him, Thus said Balak, the son of Zippor, Let nothing, I pray thee, hinder thee from coming unto me. What? I'm, I'm just keeping you guys close with the theological narrative. So now you got Balaam telling Balak that he would come but God says no. And now you got Balak telling Balaam, come anyway, because I don't care about what God says. I need you to understand neither one of these men care about the will of God. Come anyway, I'll give you more money than you can imagine. That's what Satan was saying to Jesus. Bow down to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you worship. But there are a lot of people 
including Christians, who will say, let's make a deal. And that's what's going on in your text. He says, for I will promote you to very great honor and I will do whatever you say unto me. Come thou therefore, I pray thee, and curse me this people. And, and watch this. And Balaam answered and said unto the servant of Balak, if Balak will give me his house full of silver and gold. He had his fingers like this while he was talking. If he will give me full of silver and gold, full of silver and gold. Notice what it says. I cannot, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord. It, doesn't that sound so pious? He just did. I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord. Watch this. My God, that's Elohim in the Hebrew. Okay. El is God. I is what is called a personal preposition in the Hebrew. Im plural. Elohim. My God, the Lord, my God. Sound like some of these prosperity preachers to do less or more. Now, therefore, I pray you, tarry ye here. Look at verse 19. Now, guess what he says to them? Now, tarry you here. Wait here, man. Wait here. Tell you here, here also this night that I may, watch this, know what the Lord will say unto me more. Maybe God will change his mind. You keeping up with me? You see how sinful we are? Right, I'm getting ready to teach you about the sovereignty of God now. I'm getting ready to show you something about divine sovereignty, which the average undisciplined Christian who loves to live on the grounds of his own choices hates. We hate sovereignty because God will tell you what to do regardless of whether you like it or not. And then we'll become a Balaam and we'll equivocate and argue with God's sovereignty. Y'all keeping up with me? Can we get at this? This is extremely important for you to get. So now notice what it says in verse 20. And God came to Balaam at night and said unto him, if the men come to call you, then rise up and go with them. But yet the word which I shall say unto you, that shall you do. Do you see that? Wow. Sounds like he made some concessions, doesn't it? No, he didn't. He set a condition that's going to expose Balaam yet again, because his goal is to destroy Balak and Balaam. Y'all got that? See, Balaam should have never went back to God in the first place. But because he did, what God is getting ready to show are aspects of his sovereignty. Does God know everything? Yes. Is God in absolute control? Yes. Is it with God, yea and nay, or is it altogether yea? What do I mean by that? Is God a yes or no God? Numbers 23 lays it out very clear. He says he is not a God that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. He's not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. If he said it, he'll bring it to pass. If he declared it, he'll make it good. Is that true? What that means is you don't come to God today and he say no and then expect to go back tomorrow. And then he say yes. Right. Now you are wrestling with sovereignty and you are going to be opened up to a kind of discipline. Now, let me begin to walk you through this because that is point number D, sub point D under point number one. Are you keeping up with me? Balaam struggled with God's what? All right, look at verse 12 again. Notice what verse 12 says. And God said unto Balaam, you shall not go. Do you see it? Then he said over in verse 20, and God came to Balaam at night and said unto him, I want you to get this conditional clause. If the men come, 
to call you, then rise up and go with them. Y'all got that? But yet the word which I shall say to you that you are going to do. Look over at verse 21. Are you there? And Balaam rose up in the morning and saddled his ass and went with the princes of Moab. Pastor, what are you talking about? He didn't wait for them to come. He went to them. The brother wanted to get paid. You keeping up with me? He's struggling with the sovereignty of God. Can you see it? He's struggling with the sovereignty of God. What is the sovereignty of God? It's the fact that God rules over everything. That's what sovereignty means. Sover is a uh, English or uh, old Saxon term that means to rule. Reign means to have authority, to reign over. To sovereign, to sovereign means to reign over. And when you and I struggle with God's sovereignty, we always manipulate what God has to say in order to justify what we want to do. I know it hurts, but you need to hear it today. So now let's walk through the characteristics of sovereignty so that you can get it. I've talked to you about the characteristics of God's will because the characteristics of God's will constitutes his sovereignty. You can write these down if you want them. The first one is what we would call the private will of God. I've told you in times before, it's called the secret will of God. The private will of God, the secret will of God are simply those determinations that God has purposed that are so beyond our capacity to know that we don't have insight into them. God is doing a bunch of things past finding out. Would you agree with that? His thoughts are not your thoughts. His ways are not your ways. As the heavens are high above the earth, so God's ways are above yours. You got to understand that. God flies at a level that you can't breathe at. This is Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, part A. I'm getting ready to teach you five categories of the will of God so that you know that your Bible doesn't contradict itself. So now if you know that God is omniscient, he knows everything. If you know that he's omnipotent, he has full power and authority. If he's an all-wise God, all-knowing God, all-powerful God, then this is what we know. Nothing happens in the universe without his permission or his decree. Am I making some sense? God never wakes up and is surprised by how we act. So if we act in a way contrary to God's word, he already knew it, didn't he? I'm getting ready to teach you something on that so you can get it. Lord, slow the clock down for these people. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. Listen to it. I've taught this church this many years ago. Some of you have forgotten it. This is old, fundamental theology rooted in a Protestant ethic because we actually believe the word of God, the Bible, to be the final and exclusive, inerrant, infallible word of the living God. And whatever it says is true and right. Sometimes we understand it, sometimes we don't. This is not hard to understand. Notice what he says. The secret things belong unto who? That's what I'm talking about. The secret things belong unto the Lord. If we were to do a full-fledged development of that, what it would say is there are places and spheres and realms of dominion that God exists in of which you and I as little feeble creatures can never penetrate. You will never find wisdom by effort. You will never find understanding by struggling, by strength. No man will prevail with God. You don't get to sit at God's elbow and listen to his counsel unless he wants you in on it. And because he loves us, he doesn't tell us everything. 
You know how you had that period of time with the kids when they was growing up and they kept asking you, why, 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 why? And you had to pull rank on them and you just said, because I said so. Right, so like you didn't have time to explain to them things that neither could be comprehended nor did it even really matter. Just stay in your lane, child. You'll be all right. Stay in your lane. Just stay in your lane. God got you, okay? I could go on and on with that because they will challenge you, won't they? See, and when you and I are constantly going, why? We are not trusting. And if you and I don't trust God as often Israel did, we are now impugning God's character. Now, if God called your raggedy tail out of Egypt, destroyed the greatest country in the world, led you out with a high hand, nothing wrong with you, in fact, gave you gold and silver from the Egyptians, took you through the Red Sea, fed you with manna from heaven, gave you water out of a rock, made sure your clothes did not wear out one time, brought you from Egypt and put you on the border of your promise. Can you not trust God for a few more days to get you into the promised land? Am I making some sense? So what God does is try to show himself faithful to you in order for you to simply trust him. You ain't got to get up every day trying to find a God I need to know what you up to. No, what you need to do is say, Lord, help me to trust you today. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your little thumbnail, your little puny, your little puny brain, your little puny pea brain is not bigger than a bird. You and I don't even have the wisdom of a black bird. Did y'all know that? The secret things belong unto the Lord. This is what we call the private will of God. Look at the next line. But those things which are revealed, do you see that? Theology says that the Bible is the revealed will of God. Okay, I want you to get that. The revealed will of God. I'm about to give you that. I want you to comprehend that. The things God has revealed to us, they are for us. We have a depository of truth called the Bible. It is the revelation of the invisible God. It is the word of God given to us in written propositional form, right? So it's for us to navigate our way through this life as we seek God's understanding of what it's saying. Now notice the imperative. Those things that are revealed to us are revealed to us and are what? For how long? That we may think about them? See it? This here, this here is what we call the precept of will of God. All of God's precepts are God's will for us. For instance, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, a precept was given by God to Adam. You know what he said? All of the trees of the garden you may freely eat. That was a revelation. And it was precepted because it was an imperative. He has to eat to live. He says, you can eat those trees. But then the other precept came. But the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, of Eden, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. That was a precept of will of God. Y'all got that? Very clear. You can do this. You can't do that. That's how God's word is. That's how parents are. He's our father. He can tell us what we can do. He can tell us what we can't do. Now you argue with God and act a fool all you want. Now I want to move from the private will of God through the precept of will of God to now what I call the permissive, permissive, permissive will of God. P E R-M-I-S-S-I-B-E, the permissive will of God is where we all get in trouble. It's where God will permit you to sin against him. 
Y'all keeping up with me? He, let, he lets you sin against him. And if your heart's not right, you'll get harder and harder and you're sinning against God. That's verse 17 of Genesis 2. In the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now he didn't say if. He said when. He knew you was going to do it. Now didn't I just tell you God knows everything? See, now, this is what I love about having raised ch- children. I do feel a little bit like God. I know y'all going to stone me for that. But I do feel like a father. Because, you know, after a while you learn your children, you know how predictable they are. Some of your kids are just like you. They sit there and they smile and they act like, yes, daddy, yes, daddy, yes, daddy. You know as soon as you go away, they're going to just do that thing you told them not to do. Right? Am I telling the truth? They're going to just do it. You already know it. So you got to have a plan, plan B. Because you still got to be sovereign. You can't have your kids thinking they can hoodwink you intellectually. Or you can't have your kids, as some parents do, thinking that they can smile and win you emotionally and rebel against you and there are no consequences. See, God doesn't let that happen with you and me. God, no, there are consequences for our actions against God. You do know that, right? See, there would never be a Romans 6, verse 23, if there were not consequences, right? The wages of sin is what? Right, that's why we die, consequences. Temporal death, emotional death, relational death, psychological death. You and I suffer when we rebel against God. That is the consequence. He still may be your God. You still may be going to heaven, but you're dying on your way and you're raggedy. And you are a mess and you don't walk in the fullness because you're living in rebellion against your God. You have now using the permissive will of God as if that is an approval to walk contrary to the preceptive will of God. Am I making some sense? So we've dealt with the private will of God. We are dealing with the preceptive will of God. We are dealing with the permissive will of God. And I must let you know this now, just in case you guys really need to understand. God controls everything in the universe down to the subatomic particles, every microorganism in our dimension, even at the quantum dimensions. There's nothing that exists in any part of God's creation that he doesn't totally control. Right. Studying quantum physics these days, we're understanding that quantum physics, it's filled with all kinds of intelligentsia, too. And that gives implications around a number of things. Do you know one of the implications it gives at the microbiological level? Are you ready? There is no such thing, really, as a free will. I've already told you that. Just you and I are doofuses when we think that we are operating in a vacuum where there are no hidden and subtle and acute principles manipulating our choices. I'm talking about at the microbiological level. I'm talking about the epigenetical level. I'm talking about that the sociological level, at the psychological level. Y'all keeping up with me? Y'all don't mind being in a theology class, do you? Right, because a God of order is not going to let you live in a world of chaos where there is truly a kind of freedom paradigm where he doesn't know what you're going to do. Where he always chasing you down to try to head you in and stop you. No, if everything is working after the counsel of his own will, Ephesians 1.11, if everything is working after the counsel of his own will, he may grant you and I an understanding of some of those mechanisms, will he not? 
When we go like father, like son, that's a mechanism, isn't it? When we say that Abraham lied about Sarah and then Isaac did the same thing, is that not a mechanism? He couldn't do otherwise if God didn't grace him not to do it. Keep up with me. God gives us the permissible of God to show us that we are sinners. In order that you and I learn that God knows us better than we know ourselves and that we need help from God to keep us from sinning against God. Let me see if I can build this out. Those who actually listen to me around this place, you know, I've taught you for years that God gives you the grace to keep you from sinning against him. Haven't I told you that? He restrains us. That's Genesis chapter 20 with with Abimelech. I even used a Gentile king who wanted to get at Sarah. Remember that? And God explicitly told him in Genesis 26, the only reason you didn't get at my girl Sarah is because I kept you back. Is that true? Because I kept you back. That is a powerful truth, is it not? The reason why Abimelech, that Gentile king, did not get Sarah because he married her is because God kept him back. Now, you and I don't know all of the mechanisms around how that happened, happened, but God kept him back. I also love this. This is going to be found also in the book of Genesis 26. Pull it up for our people. I love this. God kept back the pagan king from doing something horrible to Sarah, because you and I actually have learned that Sarah is a covenant, according to Paul in Galatians 4, right? Sarah is a covenant. And Sarah being the true Israel mother paradigm, she could not be penetrated by an Egyptian king. She had to be penetrated by a Hebrew king. Did that make some sense? Because the covenant people are people who are covenant in Jesus. And Jesus comes up out of the Hebrew people. So God protected Sarah from having a seed for pay. See, because the pagan kings love to seed all the foreign women so that he could have children from the foreign women. And that's what he wanted to do with Sarah. Y'all keeping up with me? But God protected Sarah from the pagan king because her womb was only for Abraham. Because there was a seed inside of her going all the way back to Genesis 3. Your seed shall crush his head. His seed will bruise your heel. That seed is Jesus. And so uh, Sarah had to be kept. So the king had to be kept. Y'all got that? That was Genesis 20, verse 7, sweetheart. I just wanted them to see it if they didn't see it. Genesis 26. This is what God had said. Go uh, Go back to verse 6. Genesis 26, this is what God has said. God said unto him in a dream, yea, I know that you did this out of the integrity of your heart, for I also what? I also what? I need you to write that down, because what I want some of you to be able to do when you go out the door today is accurately understand the sovereignty of God. Because we have way too many Christians who disobey God because they don't understand his sovereignty. You keeping up with me? Look at what it says. God held back the pagan king. The pagan king doesn't even have a relationship with God. But you see, believers live and dwell and navigate among the heathen. And God has to hold the heathen back to protect you. Can we make application to that? We can go all over the place with that. Could we not? A pagan king wants to exercise machinations over you in your job. They want to hinder you. They want to manipulate you. They want to set you up. And God holds him back. So you can keep your job, so you can pay your bills, so you can live your life, so you can take care of your kids. 
on the other hand, we have a horrible account about the rebellion and disobedience of even God's own people. In this account, it's not that God held them back. It's that God allowed it to occur. This is Hezekiah. This is Second Chronicles 32, verse 31. Hezekiah is a Judite king. He's the son, great-great-grandson of King David. This is a Judite king. And Hezekiah was a powerful, wonderful, godly king for many years. But over time, his, his head got to him. And notice what the text is. And I want you to get this. Second Chronicles 32, 31. Here it is. How be it in the business of the ambassador of the princes of Babylon. Now, God is already setting Babylon to come in and destroy Israel. But God had not yet allowed Babylon to take Judah and Jerusalem. The 10 northern tribes are taken because they were way worse. I've told you the 10 northern tribes represent all of our liberal churches that have already entered into witchcraft and seances and uh, incantations and abandonment of biblical truth and engaging in secularism and new age ideology. And every ism you can imagine has permeated the secular leftist church. Are y'all keeping up with me? But your conservative churches that still hold to a biblical worldview, they are corrupting today too. You can never find a good church that's really serious about the word of God. You go in and you think up front their creeds and confessions are good. And the next thing you know, they're compromising here and compromising there and compromising over here. And you're going, wait a minute, I just came from a church full of devils. Y'all starting that here too? Where it's starting to happen in all of the churches. You can barely get a church doing for you what we're doing for you here at Grace. This is why you don't hear this kind of teaching hardly anywhere. And this is not to toot my horn. This is not to toot my horn. This is not so I don't care how you take it. The reality is serious exegesis and exposition of God's word is really only for people that really want to take God seriously. They really want to see things the way God sees them. And what that means is you've got to look at the hard passages. I've been a Christian a long time, and I know pastors well, been with them all around the world. They know how to not teach you certain things that they know are going to dislodge the people from the leadership. Because they want to control you. So what they will never do is teach you elements of the sovereignty of God or understanding how God works at the full length of what it means to be a redeemed child of God and the sufficiency of Christ's grace. Because you see, just again, we're dealing with some of that on a political level now. You can control people by limiting the knowledge you give them. That's what's going on now at the political level with the media. So people get what we call curated news. That's controlled on the left and the right. And you think you're hearing the whole matter, which is what the word of God said must occur. Hear the whole matter so you can make informed decisions. And when you go to church and they preach to you for five minutes, you don't even begin to hear the matter. It's not possible. God's word is deep and broad and wide and requires a heart that's hungry for truth. I mean, hungry for truth. Now, listen to what happens to a, this is a godly king. Listen to what it says. The ambassador of the princes of Babylon came, who sent unto him to inquire of the wonder that had been done in the land. What wonder? The wonder that King Hezekiah had engaged in. He built Israel up, Judah up in such a way, water ducts and all kind of beautiful buildings, all kinds of monumental works. He was massive. And so the world was coming to look at the works. Are y'all keeping up with me? Now watch this. And God left him. 
See, now, if God had kept Hezekiah, he would have said, who are these men that are trying to come in and see what God has done? Babylonians. Babylonians? Oh, no. You can't come in here because we know that you're sworn enemies of God. See, the Babylonians came in so they could take pictures to take it back to the king to say, this is what we need to do. Now that we got a landscape of the land, we got a, we got a geographical framing of the land, we know how now to come in and get the Babylonians because Hezekiah was full of himself. Am I making some sense? And this is dreadful because God had just healed him of a disease that was about to kill him. When Isaiah told him to take a bunch of figs and put it on your boil and God will heal you and he'll reverse your life for 15 years. And this brother lost his mind and sold out the nation. And if you read the text further, Babylon came in and took Israel because God, what? He left Hezekiah. So when we talk about God keep us, what we're also saying is, God, don't leave me. Don't leave me. What do we mean when we say that? We're meaning that we know that our heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. We know that we can lie to ourselves. We know that we can reframe it and say it the way we want to, and it don't correspond to the truth. See, if you really believe God, you will tell him to keep you, and you will tell him, don't let you go. Right. It means that he's your shepherd. That means he holds your hand and takes you where you need to go. That means he graces you to follow him so that you don't go off the trail. Am I making some sense? Right. So the sovereignty of God will allow you and I to sin. If we don't understand, we need to call on God to keep us. Right. So when you hear promises like, you know, God is working in us the will and to do of his good pleasure. They have inherent in them a human responsibility as well. Do they not? Right. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility are tandems that go together. God will tell you what you need to do, and he expects you to ask God for help to get it done. Right. And so when you and I fail to do that, we are challenging God at the level of sovereignty. Am I making some sense? Right. So we have the uh, private will of God. We have the preceptive will of God. We have the permissive will of God. Then we have the decretive will of God. What is the decretive will of God? Every messy thing that goes on in your life and mine and in the world is still going to work to good. Listen to Isaiah chapter 46, verse 10. Isaiah 46, 8 through 10. I want you to get this as a characteristic of God, because what I want you to be able to do is to manage that all this crazy stuff going on in your world, which seems like nobody wants to do what God wants them to do. God's allowing them to do that, because if he wanted to keep them from doing it, he could. The hearts of the kings of the world are in the hand of a sovereign God and he turns it whithersoever he wills. Is that what the word of God says? Of course it does. What does that mean? When a king goes off the rail, God left him. When a king stays on the course, God kept him. When a child of God acts a fool, God left him. When a child of God keeps the course, God kept him. Those are good axioms, are they not? Now, why do they work? Because they give God the glory for your obedience and they allow you to admit that when you sin, you did that. Am I making some sense? Right, because what a lot of Christians will do is blame God for their sin. If God were sovereign, he wouldn't let me sin. Have you ever heard that? I heard a brother say, of course, I love that. 
If God were sovereign, he wouldn't have let me go on over there and get engaged in that illicit affair. If he's sovereign, he must be, I must have free will, meaning God can't stop me. I'm going to do what I want to do. You're deluded. God could have kept you easily. He kept you all the other times. See what I'm getting at? I'm wrestling with you because I want you to not be deceived like so many Christians are. Deceived and thinking that freedom is truly free. No one's free but God and God is not even free. God can't lie. So he's not free to lie. God can't change. So he's not free to change. And God can't fail. So he's not free to fail. Do you hear what I just said? So like you, the idea of freedom is another one of these sort of propaganda tools that we need to utterly demolish in our present world because it actually brings God down and raises man up. Human beings are free, but God's super limited. Like God can't stop you from doing this. God won't stop you. God can't change it. God can't. After a while, God can't do nothing. Am I making some sense? Now he's a little Lilliputian God that if you let him, he'll save you. If you let him, he'll keep you. If you let him, he'll guide you. Do you know there's a people in this world that God is going to lead and guide to glory no matter what they do? I'm so glad to be in that number. Y'all got time for me. I'm so glad to be in that number. He said it in Psalm 89. If my children sin against me, I'm going to whoop their tail. I'll kill them if I have to, because I've already paid for them. See, you messed up when God saved you, because he paid for all your sins. That means he can kill you and send you to glory if you don't want to act right down here. Did that make some sense? Right, see, like he didn't pay for your sins. You headed to glory. But now if you want to clown down here, all right, we're going to have your funeral. Here lies this poor saint who thought that they could manipulate God and live like hell on the earth when God gives you and I breath every day to bring him glory. There is a sin unto death, and I say unto you, you shall not pray for it because I'm not going to hear you. That's what God told Jeremiah. Don't pray for these crazy people. You've been preaching to them for 30 years. Babylon's on the way. I told you last week, Jeremiah saw the incense of Babylon, did he not? He saw it. And Ezekiel says it in the same book of Ezekiel chapter 31. Babylon is at the gate of Jerusalem, engaging in divinations, engaging in seances, wanting the demons to come up to tell them, should we take Jerusalem? This is why God tells you and I don't engage in any of that wickedness. All right, let me see if I can move you to my final point for today. Got a lot to deal with on terms of Balaam. But here's what God would have us to clearly know in our account. Go back to verse 12 of chapter 22. Notice what it says in chapter 22, verse 12. Now, God said unto Balaam, you shall not go with them. Why? You shall not curse the people. Why? For they are blessed. Now, didn't I just say God can't lie, change, or fail? If God has blessed you, you cannot be but blessed. Am I making some sense? 
Now, I could categorize this, but I see my time is up. I could actually give you categories on blessings. Some blessings are material. Some blessings are spiritual. Some blessings are temporal. Some blessings are eternal. It doesn't matter. When God blesses you, no one can curse you. They can try, but they can't prevail. No weapon formed against you can prosper Every argument raised against you, God will call it to fall because your righteousness is of God. Am I making some sense? Point number three, a blessed people, a blessed people of God. Blessed, there's two ways for you to understand that. Well, I think I still have your attention. Always understand in the word of God, the idea of blessing is understood two ways. The first way it's understood is what we get to do when we care and love about people. It's called pronouncing a blessing. Y'all keeping up with me? Right. And learn to be that way, child of God. Learn to be a blesser. Jesus told you that. Bless and curse not. He told you that. Learn to pronounce blessing. Learn to say, the Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord calls his face to shine upon you, which is what I do every week to us. I don't care how raggedy you are. You still need God's blessings. And so your job is to bless people. The Lord bless you. That's called pronouncing a blessing. And this is what the psalmist is about. We are called to bless the Lord at all times. Make sure the praises of God are continually in our mouth. I will bless the Lord. I will bless the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So we pronounce blessings on God and then we declare the presence of blessing. When you know that a person is blessed, you recognize the blessing. Blessed is the man that does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Blessed is he that keeps you. See, when, when you and I are blessed, that is an indicative of God having pronounced blessings on us. So the Bible tells us in the New Testament, God hath blessed us, past tense. Is that right? with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That means I'm fully resourced with every spiritual blessing from God to keep me from falling in order that he might present me faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. When you're a child of the living God, you have the eternal, secure, irrevocable, unchangeable blessing of Christ in your life. Y'all got that? You're blessed and no one can curse you because as we learned week before last, Jesus bore the curse. He bore the curse of the snake. That was last week. He took the S out and now we have the cure. Is that right? Cure, whole, saved, healthy in Jesus. You and I are headed to glory and nothing will stop us from getting there. And this is exactly the paradigm or the model with Israel. Israel is headed to the promised land and God says, you're not going to stop them. They're crossing over and you're not going to stop God's people. They're going to cross over into glory too. Did y'all get that? We're headed there, children of God, because God brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light and he's keeping us and he's guiding us and he's constraining us and he's disciplining us. That's the idea of being blessed. And what what uh, what what uh, what Balaam was reminded of in this is in Numbers 23, verse 19 and 20. Hear it as we close it down. Listen to this. And again, I'm going to be picking this up because we're headed to chapter 23. But listen to what God says in chapter 23, verse 19 and 20. Are you there? 
Here's what it says. And he took up his parable. That's that's Balaam and said, rise up, Balak, and hear this. Hearken unto me, you son of Zippor. Now, uh, in a very ridiculous and a provocative way, Balaam is still having a conversation with Balaam. Balak got oxen all over the top of the hill. They want to sacrifice and get God to, to bless, to curse the people. And now Balaam is saying one more time, I need you to hear what God has decreed concerning his people. Are you there? Verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie. Did he tell Israel he's going to bring them to the promised land? Nor is he the son of man that he should repent. Did he tell them that he would make them the head and not the tail? So you see, God's going to bring to pass his word and will in the lives of his people. That's you. That's me, too. Listen, it says that he should repent. Hath he said and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken and shall he not make it good? That verse underscores in our outline the protection of God. If God tells you he's going to get you somewhere, doesn't he have to protect you? He has to protect you. He has to protect you while you're walking, while you're waking. He has to protect you while you're asleep. He has to protect you while you're tired and even when you're strong. Stay with me. God has to protect you constantly because you can't keep yourself. God has to protect you from, from, from dangers without. And God has to protect you from dangers within. God has to protect you from your enemies without, the snakes without. And God has to protect you from the snakes within. God has to protect you from your own evil heart, from your own crazy mind, from your own wicked plans. God has to protect you. Y'all keeping up with me? Proverbs chapter 19, 21 says there are many devices, many, many devices in the heart of a man. But the counsel of the Lord that shall stand. If he declared he's going to save you, he's going to get you to glory. Even if he has to tear the world up to do it, if he has to break every limb in your body, if he has to shut down your mind, if he has to make you mute, if he has to close your mouth so that you don't lie against him, he's going to get you to glory. Remember what Jesus said, it's better to enter into glory lane than to go into hell with both hands and both arms. It's better to enter into glory with one eye than to go into hell with both eyes, lusting and sinning against the true and the living God. God means to let you know when Christ died on the cross, he bought you lock, stock, and barrel. Every toe, every toenail, every follicle of hair on your head, God bought it. Every crazy idea in your mind, Christ paid for that. Every sin you ever committed, Christ has paid. It's paid. It's totally paid. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin hath left a crimson stain. By the time I get the glory, he has washed me white as snow. When I enter into heaven, God will have cleaned me all the way up. All the way up. Yes, I know it's too good to believe, but that's the God we serve. He has blessed and no one can stop that blessing. No one can stop that blessing. Listen to it now under sub point uh, B and C in our outline. He protects his people and it's because he has propitiated his people. What does that mean, Pastor? There you go with big words again. All of the sacrifices that Israel had to engage in in the wilderness, morning, noon, and night, the blood had to keep flowing. It started on Passover, 
The night they left Egypt, the blood had to flow. Did y'all hear me? The blood in the water. The blood on the doorposts. The Red Sea opens up. They get washed in the Red Sea. The blood of the Lamb. One big collective baptism. They get washed out of Egypt into Christ. And all the way through the wilderness for 40 years, blood in the morning, blood at noon, blood at night. Why? Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. I'm glad we have a high priest in glory whose blood avails with God. And I've told you this before, Hebrews 10, we draw near to God with a pure heart and washed bodies because he ever lives to make intercession for us. And the blood of the living God never waxes warm, old, or dry. Cold or dry or old, it does not get stale. It does not lose its efficacy. He washes us by his blood continually. This is the reason why you get up every day after acting a fool yesterday with God still on your mind. Somebody better give him a praise right now. Listen, you act like you lost your mind yesterday. You did the stupidest thing and God kept you breathing and woke you up and brought you to church today to tell you he's sovereign over you and God is patient with you, and God gives you time to repent, and he's good, is he not? Because he, he could go to whooping you right now. He could tear your house up. He could tear your family up. He could destroy your life because of your rebellion and disobedience against him. Please understand God sees it all, and that comes under the rubric of his sovereignty. This is called the brutal mercies of God. This is why you're getting ready to see in the next chapter, in chapter 25, he's going to still kill a bunch of thousands of Jews. Because Balaam is going to get to him at last. Y'all keeping up with me? Last little sub point so that we can go home. We have protection from God because we have a propitiation in Jesus Jesus became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And when you and I are the righteousness of God in him, that is a banner of which no enemy in the world can ever stop. Did y'all get that? His banner over us is love. And that love wrought a righteousness that makes us the very righteousness of God. That means we are forever accepted in the beloved and it doesn't matter what happens. I will never, ever lose my salvation because I didn't earn it in the first place. You keeping up with me? So that no flesh would glory in his sight. Finally, they are a powerful people of God. Look at Numbers 23, 24. I know you're not powerful in yourself, but through God, you are capable of being powerful. I'm going to close with two verses, but I want you to hear the pointer, pointer passage. Behold, the people shall do what? Rise up as a great lion. Who is the lion of the tribe of Judah? And we in Christ are as powerful as Christ, Christ working through us. And lifted up himself as a young lion, he shall not lie down until he eat of the prey and drink of the blood of the slain. There it is, the triumph and victory of the lion of the kingdom of God. It's a great metaphor with the illusion of the triumph being the consequence of Christ, the Lamb of God, dying for the sins of his people. Our victory is in his death. As we feed on his flesh, we eat his flesh and we drink his blood like we're going to do next week. And every time we do it, 
we are declaring our triumph and victory in him. Are we not? This is why I love what uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 56 and 57 says. Hear it again. We often say this in, in, in uh, memorial services, but I want, you, I want you to hear this as you go out the door. This is the Apostle Paul letting us know. This is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 56. We are 1 Corinthians 15, 56. Learn it by heart. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 56. This is your New Testament. This is in the midst of the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Hear it and remember it. The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the what? That's why we still die. All right, so don't ever say you're not sinners. All right, now listen to this though. Verse 57. This is where Paul exhorts. But thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, so that death does not sink us into hell. It does not set us up for an eternity without God. When a man or a woman knows God in the mercies of Christ, when you die, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. To live is Christ, to die is gain. The people of God rejoice then when a believer leaves this world. We cry, but we rejoice at the same time, do we not? Here then is your marching order as we close down. Listen to what it says in verse 58. Listen to it. Therefore, this is a conclusive clause. My beloved brethren, be steadfast. Don't be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Be steadfast. Be unmovable. Resist the enemy and he will flee from you. Be steadfast. Be unmovable. Always abounding in whatever you want to do. Is that what it says? In the work of of the Lord. See, God saved you to labor for his glory. He didn't save you to live for yourself. Be steadfast, be unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. He keeps you and me every day to be a means of blessing to other people. Amen and amen.